Welcome to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcast. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In this episode, Simone Herbert Lowe, founder and principal of Law and Cyber, and Margaret Collier discuss the ever-present and ever-increasing risk of cyber security and cyber crime. Simone Herbert Lowe, founder and director of Law and Cyber, which offers legal services and risk management advice about cyber events for businesses. Simone has been a practicing lawyer for over 25 years. Before founding Law and Cyber, she was the manager, strategy and innovation at Law Cover, where she led the company's innovative response to cyber risk, including the launch of its group cyber policy, and was the author of many of Law Cover's cyber risk publications. Simone was a member of Law Cover's Cyber Risk Committee and managed the company's portfolio of claims involving cyber incidents and email fraud. Simone has given presentations on cyber risk at conferences for AIC New South Wales, PEXA, Law Cover, and other law societies. She has recently created two online courses for lawyers and conveyancers about cyber risk. AIC New South Wales will be providing Lauren Cyber's new online course, Cyber Risk for Conveyances, free to all business owners via our e-learning platform from May this year. Welcome, Simone. Thanks, Margaret. Lovely to be here. Now, Simone, your background is in the law rather than information security. How is it that you've come to work in this area? So from my background, really working for a professional indemnity insurer and handling claims involving lawyers who've been impacted by email fraud and computer hacking, I came to really realise that this is actually a really big area of professional risk for all sorts of professionals and particularly those that have duties of confidentiality or to manage um, money held in trust or high value transactions. And it seemed to me that uh, that many professionals could think of cybersecurity as something they could simply delegate or outsource to someone else, when in fact it's really in the digital era where we store all our information electronically, it's actually become something that we also need to take ownership of as professionals ourselves. All of our listeners would be aware that cyber fraud is big business. The fraudsters don't go to all this trouble and patience watching emails go back and forth just to get a couple of hundred bucks from an elderly grandmother. Now, do they? I'm sure many people would expect that they would go for the big dollar accounts, you know, banks, big businesses like BHP, but they don't do that either, do they? Cybercrime affects everyone. So uh, globally, it is estimated to reach $6 trillion in value by 2021. And cybersecurity ventures predicts that it will be the largest transfer of wealth in human history. And by 2021, it will exceed the value of the international drugs trade for all illicit drugs combined. So um, it affects everybody. And whether you're a big business or a small business, it's something you need to be aware of and you need to be aware of it personally as well. Um, there are a couple of big assumptions that people can make about cybersecurity, which can be a little dangerous. Things like uh, that you need to be a target to be a victim. So um, it's very, you know, comforting if you're a small business owner, and I'm a small business owner as well, to think, I don't need to worry about this. Why would anyone target me? 
But the reality is that a lot of this stuff is actually very viral now and, and automated. So, for example, um, the FBI put out an alert about a particular uh, cybercrime syndicate that was pushing out emails that were infected with malware designed to steal people's banking credentials. Now, that particular syndicate was pushing out 5 million emails a day. So not every single business that was on that list was ever an individual target. They were just part of a data breach somewhere. Then their email addresses were caught up in this. Yes, it is true that um, certain kinds of hackers are going to be wanting to target big businesses like banks. And obviously those business and banks put a massive amount of investment in defending themselves from those kind of attacks. But we can't assume that just because we're small businesses, we won't be a target. The cyber attacks that get reported to AIC New South Wales seem to revolve around emails. Either an email is intercepted and changed or the victim receives an email from a fraudster pretending to be from someone the victim knows or the email contains a link or attachment which downloads a virus or other malware onto the victim's computer. Is this the case? Is it solely just emails you have to look out for? It's not solely just emails, but um, you've made like a really, really important point about email because there is a phenomenon known as business email compromise, which is a massive component of internet-based fraud. So business email compromise occurs in two different ways. You can have, it it basically uh, targets anybody that does legitimate funds transfers for any reason. And uh, you can have business email compromise, that's pure impersonation fraud. So someone is just impersonating another person using email. And there may not be any computer intrusion or hacking at all. They're just using email to carry out a fraud in the way that once upon a time that would have been done with a forged document, for example. But the second type of business email compromise occurs where you actually have someone intercepts a business email or, or hacks into it or is able to get into it via a compromised or very weak password. So, yes, it's very true that business email compromise is something that conveyances need to be really, really aware of. It doesn't mean it's the only thing you need to think about, but certainly for funds transfer boards, it's a really significant um, area. You know, then the question is, if you have someone who infiltrates your computer or your client's computer, how do they do that? And we can we can talk about the different ways that people do that as well. Just sticking to emails for a second. Yep. Do your standard Norton, Kaspersky, McAfee programs, they don't protect you from nasty emails or do they? Well, there's all sorts of different software for different purposes and they're all very valuable in their own way. The thing is that like you might have anti-phishing software, uh, anti-spam software that is designed to filter out a lot of the um, things that are clearly identified as phishing emails, which are emails that are designed to sort of capture sensitive information or, um, or things that are clearly scams. But those filters are extremely valuable, but they can't filter out 100% of dangerous emails, particularly ones called spear phishing emails, where somebody is really targeting a particular person. So those things are really important, but you can't assume that because you've got them, you don't need to think about email fraud. So they do have some, they are to a degree effective. Oh, absolutely. But you can't sit back and rely on them as being the be all and end all. Uh, that's right. No, they're, they're very important things to have in your um, armour, you know, um, very important pieces. But 
what people need to be aware of is just because you bought antivirus software a few years ago doesn't mean that you are protected from every kind of cyber incident. Um, because one of the really important messages as well is that these days cyber criminals have well and truly realised that the easiest way for them to get into an organisation's, get past the cyber defences, is to trick an individual into effectively opening the door for them, right? right. And so that's where all the kind of concept of being aware of impersonation via email is so important. Well, do you have some examples of cyber fraud like that that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So in one case uh, I'm aware of uh, involving a lawyer in a property transaction, the lawyer had acted for the client uh, a number of times before. So um, there was a, a real level of trust between the lawyer and the client. So when he received an email that appeared to be from the client saying, look, we're changing bank accounts, changing banks, so we need to use a different bank account to the one we've used in the past, he just accepted that that was a valid email and he asked his employee to make sure that the settlement funds were paid into that bank account. In fact, that was, and and that was for over $800,000. Then around a week later, um, the client rang and said, where's the money? And the lawyer realised that, in fact, the money had been paid to the wrong bank account, tried to to urgently stop the transfer of funds taking place, but it was too late and, unfortunately, they were gone. And so what happened there is that somebody impersonated the client's email and then when the, um, the lawyer's employee responded to that email, from that point on she was just communicating with the scammer and the, and the, the client didn't realise what was going on at all. There's a really important lesson there because it wasn't like the lawyer's email was hacked at all. It was just simply that they received a fake email from a client and they weren't alive to that fact. Now, that particular incident happened a couple of years ago. I think now everybody is very well aware and it's something that we need to reinforce all the time is that whenever you get instructions to transfer funds via email, you should always confirm it with using another method such as a phone call. I remember a few years back there was a really big, well, a very public story about a former contestant on MasterChef losing some money through the PEXA platform, which at first people thought was the PEXA platform, but it was in fact an email. That's right. That's how they got in in the first place. And it's a really important point to make because um, one of the, and I'll come back to the, the PEXA platform issue in a moment, but many, many websites and platforms allow you to reset your password for the platform simply by hitting, you know, the request a new uh, reset password button that we will have seen on many, many different online accounts. That then sends a link enabling you to reset the password to your email. So if your email has already been compromised and somebody's in there, they're able to reset your password to many of your online accounts. So that's what happened in this particular instance. So what actually happened with that particular incident is that uh, an intruder was able to gain access to the conveyance's email account and um, reset the PEXA password that way. Now, PEXA, since that time, has introduced some very significant and important changes that mean that an event like that shouldn't happen again, um, such as multi-factor authentication using the platform and algorithms that can detect suspicious changes as well. What it demonstrates more broadly is that if you don't have good email security, people can then not only access your email but potentially other platforms that you use as well. So email security is really, really important And sometimes, you know, people can get really focused on the 
complex ways of protecting yourself in terms of cybersecurity, but really one of the most basic ones is having a strong password. And we all know it, but it's easy to overlook that in day-to-day life. But the fact is that these days um, cyber criminals have programs that can fire every single dictionary word at your email or computer to try and crack a password. So, and and um, for those of you who are interested, you could um, you could just Google world's worst passwords, and there's it has its own Wikipedia page with the worst, the weakest passwords or the most common passwords every year for the last ten years or so. So, if you've got a weak password, that is the easiest way for people to get into your to your system. So these days, it's really um, people recommend that you have a passphrase, not a password. You absolutely shouldn't share it with any anyone, and, and ideally, a password would contain something like twelve characters with a combination of symbols and letters and, and numbers. It can be, you know, obviously difficult to remember a lot of different passwords, but there are now password managers that can help you to keep them. What about the email service itself? Many people use things like Big Pond and Hotmail. How do these services stack up to the newer type of email or having your own domain name, etc.? Sure. So, you know, cybersecurity has come a long way in the years since those kind of emails were set up. And without wanting to sort of, you know, refer to any particular brands, I suppose, but just bear in mind that any email that's free and doesn't have multi-factor authentication is not really uh, arguably a business level security. These days, it's accepted that multi-factor authentication is important to securing your email account. So some of those older emails don't have any capacity to use multi-factor authentication. So what that means is once somebody's guessed or guessed your password or it's been compromised in a previous data breach, then people can get into your email. On the other hand, if you use a more a more secure paid service that has multi-factor authentication as part of it, even if they crack your password, Um, what will happen is that you'll get a code, for example, to your mobile phone if somebody tries to access your business email and then you can see that and say no and then they can't get in anyhow. So to a degree, you do still need to check incoming emails carefully and check that the email address um, from the sender is correct, not a very similar-looking address um, and be careful about links and things like that? Absolutely. This is just reminding me, uh, we had a member report to us last year, I think it was, that she had an instance where she had sent a legitimate email to her client and she had attached a PDF with um, an assessment for monies due and payable by the client. Uh, but what the client received, the PDF attachment, had actually been intercepted and doctored and that could have really caused the purchaser some problems. Yeah, that's right. All of those things are really important. There's no... There's no like silver bullet here. Like there are a number of things that you need to incorporate in, into your into your practice. So that's being aware about uh, emails and um, the fact that they uh, can involve impersonation fraud. Being aware when you look at emails that um, they might have links to malicious websites, for example. Alternatively, um, sorry, not alternatively as well, you need to, um, you know, ideally have a business-grade email service that has multi-factor authentication as well. Right. I, I think that many people have a misconception that a PDF is somehow this unalterable document and can be thoroughly relied on. 
well, I expect that a lot of people aren't aware that they can carry malware. You know, they're looking for links that are going to do um, terrible things, but they can't see anything and they just see a PDF attachment and go, oh, it's only a PDF, that's fine, but um, that's scary too. Right, yeah, exactly. So PDFs can be changed uh, and they can also carry malware as well and not people don't necessarily realise that. So, again, you know, it's frustrating to think that you get a, a notice from the stamp duties office or whatever and that... Um, um, but you really do just need to just be aware that things can be changed. So the way it might have worked in that instance, for example, it's it's not that in that second it takes to get from one email to the other that somebody's grabbed it and changed it, right? What happens is that that the intruder is already in one of those email boxes and they can set up email rules. Um, so, for example, if they were in a uh, conveyances email, and I'm certainly not saying that's what's happened there, could have, could have been either one, but if they were in a conveyances email, they could set up rules that mean that all of the client's emails are uh, redirected away so that the conveyancer doesn't see them in the inbox. Or if they're in the client's email, they could um, set up rules so that they the client doesn't see anything from the lawyer and it sort of go- goes to the hacker. The hacker then changes the PDF and then sends it through to the client. So that's how it's sort of done. That's how I've seen it done. Yeah, right. The other issue that we've seen that was popular about 12, 18 months ago, I've heard less about it now, is what I think of as grooming. The conveyancer gets an email saying, I've just bought a house. Can you please act for me? Um, And then a bit later, unfortunately, it's really difficult for me to get out or they're a teacher and hard to reach. But basic line is we have to communicate by email and you exchange several emails back and forth. It all seems fine until it happens and whatever it happens to be. It's usually a dodgy attachment or something like that. How do you pick out who is the genuine teacher and who is the fraudster looking to um, infect your computer? Well, uh, that that's a really, you know, it is a tough one. And, and of course, people are, uh, have got competing um, interests there. They don't want to in- install anything bad on their computer. At the same time, they don't want to turn away new clients. So that is really challenging. And I've certainly seen that with other types of, in, in other types of professions as well. This is where it's important to have that zero trust mindset, you know. And, and look, this is a really interesting era, era that we're in now. People who would never have gone on Zoom or FaceTime two months ago or a month ago are now Zooming uh, every day or or using FaceTime or whatever. So, you know, you don't just have to rely on email. You can use other ways to see um, who your client is. You can pick up the phone, all those sort of things. If anyone wants you to download, um, you know, they say there's a contract um, to download or, or whatever, um, you know, I just really encourage people to think first, well, is this person my client yet? Right. If they're not, do I want to take this risk or, you know, is this something I need to refer to my IT consultant to open? The other thing I wanted to ask you about was a couple of years ago, maybe more actually, um, when we first became aware of cyber security as becoming, you know, the new big issue, I went to a couple of seminars and there were people in the audience who were so confident that the big platform that they were using and I reluctantly mention Office 365 because everyone trusts Microsoft and 
you know, not with that reason. But um, many of the people in the audience went, but I'm using Microsoft, you know. I mean, surely I'm protected. You know, these big platforms, they've got all that money. Surely it's safe. But they aren't, are they? Well, um, you know, Office 365 is one of the most popular business software packages in the world. Um, And it does have some really great protections in it, but so much depends on the settings that you choose to use with it. So a lot of different software packages, no matter or or any kind of online accounts, you can select different kind of privacy settings, you can select different kind of security settings, and they may actually be quite weak settings in the default mode. So, um, you know, many different um, software packages, you know, they want everybody to have a great user experience, right? So if you put multi-factor authentication on your email, and that means you need to put in a code, um, you know, that might slow you down. But if you're a conveyancer managing high value transactions, then I would suggest that having to put in a code every now and again is not a major issue. But you need to configure the software to make sure that that's what happens. So there's no doubt that you can use MFA on Office 365. That's one of the benefits of it, but you need to make sure that you have that setting. You know, I really encourage people too, when when you think about, you know, everything's a cost these days and sometimes you can feel reluctant to, to switch on, a you know, or to engage somebody for a few hundred dollars to assist you with your cybersecurity. But think about what the cost will be if you don't do that and you don't, don't install the protections that you could. So I really encourage people to, to, to use people who have some cybersecurity expertise when they're setting up their accounts. Yes, well, that's the thing, isn't it? We tend to focus on the hackers and the fraudsters, etc. But the, that's the thing is the victim has a certain degree of responsibility as well, don't they? I mean, human error comes into this a lot, doesn't it? Well, you know, and I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm sort of passionate about awareness raising because this is where we come back to people having big assumptions about oh I've used Microsoft I don't need to to think about it well you do still need to to make a selection about what um, what are the appropriate settings for you for you to use and you do need to to be aware that you can be a victim of cybercrime if you're a, a small business so move away from those big assumptions that you don't need to think about anything and instead think there are a number of business risks I need to think about and one is cybersecurity. I don't need to be a cybersecurity expert, but I do need to have thought about it and what my risk profile is and and, and maybe engage someone to conduct an audit or to, um, to help me when I move from, uh, you know, an older account to something like Office 365 to make sure my settings are okay. And I assume staff training forms a part of this as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I noticed from the main media that conveyances, lawyers and real estate agents seem to be a prime target for hacks. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, in fact, I was just reading a report by the uh, FBI on internet crime, uh, which just um, came out, which said that in the United States in 2019, uh, fraud involving property transactions exceeded $111 million. And what was interesting about that was that that was almost twice the value of credit card fraud via the internet in that time. Uh, and it might be that there's a lot more credit card scams, but when you think about it, of course, the amount of money that's being transferred in property transactions is very huge. And people who are involved in property transactions, I mean, this isn't something that happens every day, so people aren't necessarily 
aware of all the scams. Of course, conveyances and lawyers and real estate agents have been hearing about it, but that doesn't mean that clients have been. So one of the really great ways to protect yourself and your clients is actually to educate your clients as well so that when you, as a conveyancer, when you meet them for the first time or, or we, more, which is likely to be a virtual meeting, I suppose now, but when you talk to people or you write to them, uh, if you can include warnings about cybercrime on your email footer or in your en- engagement letter, for example, then that means your clients are more educated about it. So bear in mind that they don't hear this stuff every day uh, and it's and, and an educated client is much more likely to pick up a scam email as well. So that's really important. But insurers for, for lawyers have certainly um, found that the lawyers involved in property are the ones that are, are most likely to be impacted by cybercrime. And in fact, one legal professional indemnity insurer uh, found that two out of three cyber events involved a sole practitioner in a property transaction. So that's really important to be aware of for a couple of reasons. One, property transactions are high value targets. You've got people involved in them who aren't necessarily aware of of the details of the level of cybercrime that we're seeing, but also that, that you're never too small to be a target. And in fact, the smaller you are, the less likely you are perhaps to have some of the business infrastructure that can help protect bigger businesses as well. So yes, property transactions are rich targets. And that's one of the reasons that I know AIC New South Wales has really gone on the front foot over cyber risk. Well, then quick question without notice. If the worst happens and you are a victim of a hack or an attack of some kind, what do you do? Okay, so, you know, I really encourage you, if, if you've got any concerns whatsoever, to speak to the person you use for um, for IT support and cybersecurity support if, if you do have someone. Now, one of the benefits of cyber insurance, is cyber risk insurance, is that you can get emergency assistance from a, like a help desk straight away, and that can be really invaluable. So if you have cyber insurance, that that should be one of your first calls. If you're aware that your email might have been compromised or any password might have been compromised, for example, you think, oh, I thought I was entering a particular website and may not be, then obviously changing your password as soon as you can as well. But really, uh, really encourage people to uh, have a forensic investigation as soon as they can. Are there any official government departments? Should you call the police or anything like that? Look, all businesses are different, but if you're a conveyancer and you're handling really large value transactions, you know, it's very prudent to have an IT consultant helping you and ideally someone with expertise in cybersecurity that you can contact exactly, you know, immediately when something like that happens. Uh, Certainly there are organisations that crime should be reported or hacking and that's one of the first things you should do but your very first thing is trying to kind of stop the spread of anything or or stop funds from being transferred straight away. So I know that, for example, I've seen um, the AIC New South Wales list of things that you should do if something's happened, such as contact banks, contact packs. I really encourage everybody to, to have a printed copy of that available where they work. Because one thing that you don't necessarily realise is if, for example, you get locked out of your computer system or your email, 
then all of the things, that information about people who can help you may not be available to you if you haven't printed it in a hard copy. So it's really important to have those kind of details available. And also, if you're involved in an incident, one of the first things you're likely to do is panic. It's a natural human reaction. So if you've got something printed out with with those kind of phone numbers and email addresses of people that can help you, then that's a, a really good start. Yeah, that's the point, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but there are viruses, etc. Even if you haven't lost money, there are viruses that will lock you out of your machine and you've got nowhere to go, you've got no one to contact. That's a really good point. Yeah, particularly with um, a type of malicious software called ransomware. So ransomware is when um, a cyber criminal encrypts everything on your uh, computer or your network unless you pay a ransom. So um, if you haven't for example, got a cyber insurance policy, but you've only stored it in soft copy on your computer, you won't have a record of that. So, you know, it's just one of those things that's, again, really important for business continuity purposes to have certain kind of information available in hard copy to to protect you in that kind of situation. So, in fact, probably best if everyone puts together some kind of office policy document so that they're they're ready and prepared to move should should the worst happen. It's really scary stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's an incident preparation plan. But even even just having the contact details of the people that you need to call or your bank's phone number, just things that if, if you're in an incident, you know, so you don't have to think too much about it. Can you tell us about any other scams that you're aware of? Well, I'm aware of one case that involved another practitioner Uh, who'd never had any professional issues at all. And one week, however, he received two emails from clients saying that they'd transferred money into his trust account following an email that they'd received from him. But in fact, he had never sent them the email. So he was very concerned straight away that there might have been some kind of fraud. Uh, And he spoke to the clients and then the banks to try and stop those transactions going through. And the good news was that in one case that involved a funds transfer of more than a million dollars, he was able to the bank was able to stop the transfer taking place. But unfortunately, there was another funds transfer for several hundred thousand dollars where the money had already gone. Clearly, um, there was a concern that his email might have been hacked since there were two clients impacted, and he had a um, a, a very long-standing relationship with his. IT consultant and um, he asked him if there was any possibility that he'd been hacked and he uh, he was advised that there was no possibility at all and so he took the view that it must have been the client's email that had been hacked. The client didn't take that view and, and said I'm going to bring a professional negligence claim because I got an email from you but you know unfortunately the really sad thing about these cases is you have two innocent people pointing the finger at each other But unfortunately for the practitioner in that case, um, that's not where it ended because around two weeks later, he came into his office on a Monday morning and found many, many emails from clients over the course of the weekend saying, why are you asking me for money? And it was very obvious that unfortunately at that point that it was actually the practitioner's email who'd been hacked. So a cybersecurity expert was uh, engaged to try and work out what had happened 
And the expert found that actually what had happened was that one of the practitioner's employees had been the victim of a phishing attack. So um, she had clicked on a malicious link that then took her to a website that captured certain information and they were able to access the firm's email that way. So um, unfortunately for that practitioner, because there had been two fraudulent transfers of funds, and more than 20 other clients who had had a fraudulent attempts or fake emails sent to them, it was very obvious that the people who had accessed the information were attempting to carry out fraud against the clients and he needed to notify all of his clients about the risk of identity fraud. So, you know, an important lesson there as well is that you know, you need to be really vigilant. And sometimes that might mean also getting an independent assessment of whether or not you have been um, the victim of an incident where there's been some evidence to suggest that you have been. So go to your usual IT person in the first instance, but once you've got hard evidence of an attack, you really need to go up that extra level, do you? Well, I think that's that's prudent. Yeah. So, of course, you know, if you have a long-standing relationship with someone and you have an incident, it's natural that they're going to be the first person you ask. Just keep an open mind about it if you're in a situation where where it remains possible that you're the one that's been hacked. I think it's very good good advice to get um, to get an independent assessment. And really, that is one of the very great advantages of cyber insurance as well is is that you can have access to people who are real experts in cybersecurity and have forensic expertise in this space. Yeah. Lastly, you know, we're all, as you say, working remotely. You've referred to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, does this present additional risks? Definitely. Now, look, it may be that many conveyances were working remotely or working from home before. And like, I think different, you know, for different industries, will have different, you know, this will have had a different impact. Of course, you know, um, for some businesses, all of a sudden, everybody's working from home and that never happened before. But what it does mean is that with less face-to-face interaction, there's more and more reliance on email. So we've already talked about, you know, business email compromise being a serious matter. The more emails there are, the more opportunity there is for there to be a, a bad email, I suppose, or a fake email. But the other thing is, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, for everybody, this is a really challenging time. But for some people, particularly if you've got more distractions at home, I um, can't imagine what it's like to have little kids at home at the moment or trying to do homeschooling as well. There's so many distractions as well. And unfortunately, cyber criminals do take advantage of difficult times. So um, the FBI and the Australian Cybersecurity Centre have both put on their websites warnings about the fact that cyber criminals are using COVID-19 as an opportunity for a new range of scams. So those scams might be pretending to, to say that you need to click on this particular link or visit this particular website Uh, in order to get government benefits or to get COVID-19 testing, for example. And the app, the the COVID Safe app has just come out and already there have been scams impersonating that. So um, it is a a time to be particularly vigilant for those reasons. Okay, thanks, Simone. I thank you very much for your time and sharing your expertise. Any last second thoughts, anything to take away, any tips and tricks sort of thing? Look, I suppose just one sort of final uh, comment that we haven't really talked about too much is is the human error factors sort of with all of this. So a lot of, as we've seen, you know, unfortunately there are cyber criminals that, that do want to steal people's information or access to various accounts and so on. But sometimes things can happen just through human error as well. 
So um, under the privacy legislation, under the um, Commonwealth Privacy Act, there's an obligation on businesses and certain businesses to report certain serious data breaches. And the Office of the Information Commissioner statistics indicate that around 35% of really serious data breaches happen through human error. And the biggest category is actually email being forwarded to to the wrong person. So that's a very simple error to make, for example, and it's just another thing to to be vigilant about. But I suppose I'd just like to wrap up with a, with a bit of a, um, a reminder about the kind of things that people need to look for uh, in terms of um, phishing emails or um, email scams. And most people will be aware of this, but it's just a, a reminder. So it's about um, not opening suspicious attachments or clicking on links that might be suspicious. Check for spelling mistakes in particular, because that's often a sign that the emails come from somebody who isn't the true sender, uh, who isn't the person you think it is. Check the salutation. So if you have an email that's addressed to dear user, for example, or hi, but it doesn't actually mention your name, it looks like it's a clear sign that it's been sent to a lot of people and you should you know, question whether or not it's genuine. Never provide personal information or passwords, of course. Be very wary of urgency. So whether it's internet fraud or any other kind of fraud, often scammers are trying to get people to sidestep their usual security processes or just do something that without really thinking through the consequences. So be very wary of any anyone saying that something is particularly urgent and just sort of pause and say, ask yourself, well, why is that? Always review the email signature. Does it look similar to other emails you've received from that person? And then lastly, um, check the reply address to an email. See, off, people can put any particular display email, uh, display name on an email, but sometimes the reply you'll see will go to someone different and that means it's clearly a fraudulent email. And the same thing um, with website addresses. So uh, a common type of phishing scam you know, might be impersonating really trusted or, you know, big organisations that a lot of people use like Australia Post or Spotify or Netflix or something like that. So if it says you need to change your password in an email, you need to be really sceptical about that. And if you want to log into your account, rather than click on a link in the email, go to the official website and see if, in fact, you need to do anything. Because what they're trying to do is get you to go to a bogus website that impersonates um, a real organization and to capture your password just some final tips that i suspect are a reminder but um you know it is important to just be reminded about these things from time to time and remain vigilant about it right thank you very much and uh, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your expertise today i think we'll leave it there right thank you uh, margaret it's a pleasure to be here Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcast. Special thanks to Simone Herbert Lowe of Law and Cyber. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Pulley & Co. I'm Julian Pulvermacher and look forward to your company next time.
podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal, technical or IT advice and should not be taken as such. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AICNSW, an accredited cybersecurity professional or a licensed conveyancer.